This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 3, The Legacy of Romanticism. All right, today is the second of these, these two big introductory lectures, Enlightenment and Romanticism. These two big philosophical currents that are kind, you can understand them also as kind of moods. Mood is a big word. In German, they say Stimmung. So you can understand them as moods. Um, and those two big currents will kind of play out throughout the whole rest of the course, constantly in tension with each other, and also kind of intermingling. So one thing you will see, we haven't yet gotten to Hegel and dialectics, although we, we will soon, but this idea of things that are antithetical coming against each other and kind of intermixing and existing intention, this comes up again and again and again. Um, Okay, so a little like recap of the, the Enlightenment mood. Um, this idea of progressive time, we're moving forward, that's a good thing, we're moving towards better things, we keep learning more and more about the world, you know, and the more we learn, the more we build on our knowledge, the greater our understanding through use of our reason, and by using that reason, we're going to be able to make the world a better place. Um, we are special. We are special creatures, we human beings, because we have reason. It's a very humanist-centered movement. You know, again, like my, my kids and my son in particular is always accusing me of being a speciesist. He's always saying that all of these, like all of these philosophies privilege human beings over other creatures. And what about the bison? And what about the wild pigs? And what about the cows? And enlightenment is very human-centered. Um, for better or for worse, I'll leave the whole animal rights question to the side. Um, we have natural rights. We deserve natural rights. We have certain kind of rights because we are creatures possessed of reason, because we are human beings, because we are not ants, butterflies, caterpillars, anything like that. Um, Enlightenment thinkers differed on the relationship between the state of nature and the state of culture or civilization, how we move to that, how we kind of make that passage from the state of nature to the state of culture. Um, Hobbes believed that everything was nasty and violent and brutal and selfish in our natural condition, and we needed to come together in a society and give up all of these natural rights in the interest of security. Um, Locke basically saw the state of nature as a kind of tabula rasa, you begin with nothing, um, not so bad, not perfect, but but in order to kind of, you know, finesse certain things and protect certain rights, you need a government based on consent of the governed. And then there's Rousseau, who has this great nostalgia for this hyper-idealized state of nature in which everything was beautiful and pure and virtuous before society comes in and starts corrupting. Um, they were united, though. All of these thinkers were united in the sense of a possibility of some kind of rational order and understanding of the world. You know, and the model of enlightenment was that human life, you know, be it you know, science, love, art, politics, 
you know, social behavior can basically be understood on the model of the natural sciences. The natural sciences become the model for everything else. When we get to structuralism, you'll see that language, that linguistics becomes the model for everything else. You know, in enlightenment philosophy, the natural sciences, Newtonian physics become the model for everything else. The idea that through careful scientific observation, you can figure out how things work. You know, by imp empirical knowledge, you observe something concretely happening in real time. You take notes, you calculate, you know, you figure out what the patterns are, and that pushes your knowledge farther. Um, so the, the mood is classification, it's rationality, it's calm, it's order. Um, Isaiah Berlin uses the metaphor of the jigsaw puzzle. A big jigsaw puzzle, the world, life, complex, lots of different pieces, but you work on it progressively and you keep putting in more pieces and every piece you put in the puzzle gets you closer to the whole. So we don't have all the pieces in yet, but we're moving in that direction. It keeps getting better and better. The idea that all questions can at some point by someone somewhere somehow be answered, that knowledge is possible, knowledge is desirable, the truth is out there somewhere. There is such a thing as objective truth. It can be discovered. It can be discovered the way that Newton discovered the law of gravity. Um, given that the world is in essence comprehensible, even though we haven't put all those pieces together yet in the jigsaw puzzle and comprehended it all, but it is comprehensible, it can be done, we should all be cheerful, optimistic, calm, chill, and just kind of keep going. Um, so there's another optimistic assumption here. The mood of enlightenment is very optimistic. I'm emphasizing this because later in the course there's going to be a lot of talk about the dark side of enlightenment. But that was not the mood at the time. The mood at the time was very cheerful and optimistic. The, also the idea that there's a harmony of interest. That as we acquire more knowledge and understanding of the world, we can shape the world in such a way that it's better for everyone. That the rights of the individual and the rights of the collective can be reconciled. That, the, that good things can go together. Isaiah Berlin has a really wonderful and colorful ways of explaining this, which is why you have his, his reading for this week. And if you've never read Isaiah Berlin before, you're in for a treat, because he's, he's one of the wonderful writers you know, in the field of the, the 20th century. Um, okay. Um, there's also an implicit sense that reason leads to virtue. That because we are human beings possessed of reason, we are reasonably going to want to behave well. You know, Dostoevsky is going to come in this week and revolt against this and say, what are you talking about? Why do you assume that? Um, but this was the Enlightenment assumption that reason leads to virtue. Um, out of this, we're going to have, out of this philosophy that is based on the model of the natural sciences, in particular on physics, there's going to be the political philosophy of liberalism that is kind of brewing during Enlightenment. And it's based on the notion of individual rights and civil liberties. You know, the, the reason why our claim to those rights, our claim to the fact that we should not be tortured, we should not be, you know, thrown in prison without a reason, we should have rights to free speech, we should not be ensurfed, those all come from the fact that we are creatures possessed of reason. It's reason that gives us a claim to natural rights. 
Um, so all of these things that kind of go with liberalism, free trade, participation in government, government is based on the consent of the governed, the abolition of serfdom, the abolition of censorship, this belief in progress, you know, the fact that you, know, you, you can't throw people in prison or punish them without probable cause, that you're not supposed to torture people, all of these things. You know, it's, it's a notion of human dignity and individual rights, natural rights based on reason. So again, this fetishization of reason. This is why the word reason is on your enlightenment handout. And again, you may say there's no reason that should be like a special word on our handout. We all know what that word means, but it has a, a particular weight and kind of transcendent aura about it in enlightenment. Okay, romanticism comes in as a revolt against that mood. It's sometimes called the, the Gegenaufklärung, the kind of the counter, the counter enlightenment. But as with anything in life, you get a kind of rebellion. Whatever's going on, you're going to get a rebellion against it. Um, and um, if social contract theory is kind of the social contract theory, um, Diderot's encyclopedia are the kind of illustrative genres, literary genres of enlightenment. The illustrative genres of romanticism are going to be poetry. Poetry and to some extent plays expressing this idea. Um, and I'll, I'll read you a quote from um, the Romanian writer um, Emil Choran who flirts with fascism in his youth in the 1930s and then um, flees Romania and goes to France. And in an interview he gives late in his life talking about the differences between France and Romania, um, he says, and what basically is the West? What is the great French civilization? The idea of courtesy other than a boundary that one accepts on account of reason. Just do not go over the boundary. It doesn't pay. It is bad taste, etc. As for the Balkans, Charon says, one cannot speak of civilization. There is no criterion for it. There, one is simply excessive. And this kind of this claim to the excessive, this claim to the the emotion that can't be rationalized is going to be at the center of enlightenment. You know, and I'm giving you this quote by a Romanian writer, but in fact, the center of romanticism is, is Germany. Um, and if the center of, of enlightenment is France, the center of, of uh, romanticism is going to be Germany. Um, and the idea here is that all of this disenchantment, what, what Weber calls disenchantment, the fact that the world is not magical anymore, Kings don't rule by, by divine right. You know, there aren't these supernatural forces granting grace or punishment. That is disenchantment. You know, we are human beings in a sober, rational way, using our minds to understand the world. You know, and it turns out that that mood, while cheerful and optimistic, at least for some people, is kind of emotionally unsatisfying a lot of the time. Um, the problem is that disenchantment can prove emotionally unsatisfying. This, by the way, turns out to be the problem with liberalism as, as well, and we'll, we'll see that later. All of this rationality and the assumption of a convergence of interests between the individual and the collective turns out to be a bit emotionally unsatisfying. So if the key words of enlightenment were civilization, reason, progress, 
the key words of romanticism are going to be passion, beauty, longing, creation, will. And this idea of will is going to be very important, this idea of desire. Um, romanticism is, comes in a, as a reaction, as a rebellion, as a revolt against the hard sciences as a model, against rationalism as an undoubted virtue. It's a rejection of the notion that all questions can be answered. It's a rejection of the notion that all virtues are compatible with one another, that interests can be harmonized. There's going to be a turn towards the preciousness and the value of the individual soul, which is often going to be in conflict with other individual souls. The idea that truth is not something that can be discovered outside through scientific experimentation. It's something that is produced in our soul. It's an act of creation. Um, so if the center of enlightenment is France, and remember I gave you that somewhat sarcastic anecdote about really not, really not the world, really Europe, really not Europe, really France, really not France, but Paris, really not all of Paris, but you know, the very like urbane cafe in the center frequently by, by the fancy philosophers. Um, the center of romanticism is going to be Germany and not an urban cafe, but the woods the forest, um, in particular in Jena. A lot of these guys end up in Jena, which is, by the way, a beautiful German university town. You know, I recommend it to everyone. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a great university there. There are great places to go jogging. Um, there's still beautiful forest. It's not as rustic as I assume that, you know, it was in the late 18th and early 19th century that we're talking about. But there's a big idealism about nature and about going off into the forest. The romantics are, if, if the, the metaphor for enlightenment, which is inscribed in the language itself, is light. You know, enlightenment, the, the century of light, this kind of enlightening. Um, what the romantics are going to love is darkness, and they're especially going to love bad weather. Like, so anytime you get like lots of fog, thunderstorms, um, these kind of you know, dramatic lightning strikes, you know, rain pouring in the forest, you have to hide in a cave, that's like their favorite stuff, okay? So dark woods, provincial, far away. And that's like, it, again, it's, it's a mood. Romanticism is going to idealize nature. Um, and so you see here, so there are already some transitional figures, Rousseau in particular. He's a transitional figure in that depending on which Rousseau you read, He's a quintessential figure of either enlightenment or of romanticism. So if you read his work on the social contract, he's a crucial enlightenment thinker. He's somebody who works um, with Diderot on the encyclopedia. Um, if you read his confessions, his autobiography, and I assure you he has a lot to confess. He was kind of a slime ball in various ways. Um, that has a very kind of romantic flavor to it. Um, his ideas about government are those of an Enlightenment philosopher. His self-description is much more of a Romantic philosopher. Um, his tone is very much that of a Romantic philosopher. And his idealization and his nostalgia to go back to this state of nature becomes the model for nostalgia in general. 
it becomes the model for nostalgia in general because nostalgia, and there's a wonderful book on this by Svetlana Boym, um, nostalgia is the longing for the thing in the past that never actually was. Um, it's very, you know, the thing that you imagine, you know, would have been quite wonderful and you think it was there and lost, but really you've recreated it in your mind. Um, that's Rousseauian nostalgia, nostalgia for the state of nature that becomes the model for lots of other nostalgia. Um, there's a, a fancy German word they use, um, Sehnsucht um, in the Romantics, which is this longing. And the longing becomes a kind of thing unto itself. The object, in some sense, is less important. It's the emotion of the longing for that which can never quite, quite be obtained. Um, and this is an epistemological problem as, as well that I will hopefully get to if I don't chat too long about these other things. Um, okay. Um, so, yeah, Rousseau has a very, like, the content of his social and political theory is very much that of an Enlightenment philosopher, but his, his tone and his temperament are very romantic-like, and he falls into these dramatic conflicts with basically everybody. Um, he has this exchange of letters with Voltaire in which his letter is just like, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. <laughs> You're like, come on, grow up. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, People really love, like, people either like love or, or hate Rousseau. But again, he's, very, he's a very interesting character. He becomes an, an inspiration for naturalist communes. Um, his idea about returning to nature as a kind of way to escape the alienation from the self. You wish you could return, but there's no way to return. Are you going to go live as a feral person by yourself in the woods? He doesn't actually do that. He just talks about it. Um, again, one of my favorite Charles Taylor quotes. And if you haven't read Charles Taylor, who is still very much alive, and one of the most wonderful human beings on the planet, um, he, has, um, he says about Rousseau, to say that Rousseau was hard to get on with would be to make the understatement of the 18th century. Um, okay. Um, there were, for Rousseau, there were two things that really set, set man apart from other creatures, this kind of free human agency and this openness to becoming. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to this a couple times in this lecture. So if enlightenment is about understanding how things are, you know, what does it mean for the world to be in a certain way? Can we discover the laws of physics? The romantics are going to say, no, it's not about to be, it's about to become. This idea of becoming. What can we become? Again, this is going to seem like the distinction between to be and to become is not something like you normally think about every day, even though we use those words hundreds if not thousands of times a day. But put that in your head and let it percolate because it's, it's going to be a key distinction. It will be important for Nietzsche. It will be important for Heidegger. It will kind of keep coming back to be versus to become. We are uniquely underdetermined. We are self-creating beings that to become is going to give us a lot of agency. You know, and, and Rousseau also has his fancy French word for pity, which is this kind of pity, compassion, man as a sensitive creature who had natural empathy for other human beings in this idealized state of nature that nobody has ever actually seen or experienced until society and property comes in and turns us all into superficial, snobby, ostentatious materialist. You know, and then we start becoming very vain and egocentric and full of self-love. Um, 
Okay, one of the things that romantics take from Rousseau um, is, from his, um, is from his discourse on the sciences and the arts, which is a kind of diatribe against the bourgeoisie almost before its time, because there's barely a bourgeoisie at this time. Um, we'll come back to this with Marx. And it's about the virtue of authenticity. The virtue of authenticity is a big romantic theme. Um, and the, the discourse on the sciences and the arts called the first discourse is about this idea that the, the bourgeois is always somebody other and never himself. You know, that we, we live in a world in which we all compete to show off, uh, in which our, our amour propre, this kind of self-love, pride, vanity, conceit, egocentrism, is the true cause of our discontent. And responsible for that is society, is the fact that we no longer live in the state of nature that has created this corruption, this self-love. It's not natural, this amour propre, it's, it's artificial. It's a vanity born from the gaze of others. Um, property is corrupting, it leads us into this competition, into this vanity. Society is falsifying. You know, it causes us to pretend to be other than who we are. There's no virtue without authenticity. Uh, and authenticity requires a retreat from society. So I'll, I'll read you two quotes from the Discourse on the Sciences of the Arts. One no longer dares to appear what one is. And under this perpetual constraint, the men who make up the herd that is called society will, when placed in similar circumstances, all act in similar ways unless more powerful motives incline them differently. One will thus never really know with whom one is dealing. So this authenticity-inauthenticity distinction, again, it will keep coming back in this course. He also has this wonderful phrase of the deceitful veil of politeness beneath this so much vaunted urbanity which we owe to the enlightenment of our century. So this critique of enlightenment as giving us a deceitful veil of politeness. You see, it's very close to Chiron here. Like everybody, this, like, uh, this kind of artificiality. Um, my, my son, who's always been in constant rebellion against using utensils, like he just, he doesn't like using a fork and knife. Um, and this has been like a constant fight, like an incredible like amount of energy has gone into this, you know, and we talk about how like, even if you don't see the reason for it, you know, like it, it's impolite for other people. You show respect to other people by like eating correctly with the fork and the knife. And he says, but what about cavemen? I'm showing respect for the caveman by eating with my fingers. <laughs> like, what about, like, can't I be authentically expressing my respect for the people who ate before the fork and knife? So this is a very Rousseauian position. <laughs> um, to go back to the state of nature, to, like, um, you know, to, to take off this deceitful veil of politeness. Um, Okay, so his legacy for the Romantics is going to be the virtue of authenticity, the exaltation of the natural over the artificial, um, the belief that in the essence of our humanity there might be more passion than reason. So we're going to have passion now placed in tension in opposition to reason, and we'll keep coming back to this.
Um, okay, I want to spend some time with Kant because Kant's going to keep coming back um, again and again. And again, Kant is, is one of the crucial figures in both Enlightenment and Romanticism, depending on which Kant you focus on. Um, Kant gives us our best definition of enlightenment. You know, Kant's slogan, which you will see in his essay, What is Enlightenment? That won second prize in the essay contest, which you're reading for this week. Um, Sapere ade, dare to know. Dare to know. I, 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 I work with... Uh, I work with a group of philosophers originally from Moscow who were around the philosopher Mirab Marmardashvili. He was a kind of Georgian Soviet philosopher who sadly died prematurely in 1990. Um, and they started a kind of civic education project when the Soviet Union fell. And the idea was a kind of absolutely enlightenment project. It was that the problem is we're coming out of this totalitarian era. People don't know how to think. You know, we're going to, you know, we're going to reach out. We're going to start training all of the, the politicians, the teachers, the journalists, the NGO people, the human rights activists. You know, we're going to run them through philosophy seminars. We're going to run them through sociology seminars. We're going to run them through history seminars. And we're going to take the Kantian slogan, Sapere Ade, dare to know. Have the courage to use your own reason. So all of these years later, like, nobody's come up with a better definition than Kant. We're still there, you know, and still today, as these Russian dissident friends of mine, like, tear their hair out, um, because this is the, what is happening now is the failure of their entire lives, and it's just wrenching. They're still, you know, you know, there's, Sapera Ade, Kant's What is Enlightenment is still their, like, that's still their model, that's still their slogan. Like, if something has gone wrong, it's that people are not thinking. It's that they have not had the courage to think for themselves. You go back to Kant. You go back to Kant, you go back to that definition of enlightenment. Enlightenment is, you know, is the, the exit from your own self-imposed immaturity. It's thinking. It's having the courage to use your own reason. We'll come back to this with Arendt, too. For Arendt, the greatest sin is going to be the failure to think. There's no excuse for the failure to think. Um, have the courage to use your own reason. So Kant is the quintessential, you know, voice of enlightenment, slogan of enlightenment, have the courage to use your own reason. Um, you know, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because now I'm going to show you how the romantics are going to use him for antithetical purposes. Um, but let me first spend a couple minutes and talk to you about his 1781 critique of pure reason. Um, which is a very, very long and complicated book. If you, want to, if you want to commune with the critique of pure reason, my colleague in the philosophy department, Paul Franks, teaches a brilliant course on this first critique, you know, and he knows every single line of it. I've, like, I've sat in on this course. It's wonderful. So if you want to really commune with Kant's epistemology, you should take Professor Franks' course. Um, the critique of pure reason is about the limits of human reason, but not in a pessimistic way. It's about what we can and cannot know. You know, what we can rationally can and cannot know. What can we understand about the world? And does the world exist apart from how we perceive it? So again, I, I keep going back to my like, you know, how do I know this bottle of water exists and it's not a projection of my imagination? How do I know the pen exists? It's not a projection of my imagination. How do I know what the world is mind independently when I can never get out of my mind? So there was the realist camp 
in philosophy that said, yes, the world is real, it exists. You know, our minds have to kind of conform to what it is. And then there's the idealist school, which says like, no, it's all inside our heads, you know, and who knows what's going on outside our heads. There's no possibility to get out. And Kant kind of comes in and brokers a compromise. And his compromise is to say, yes, the world is real. I believe the world is real. I believe there is a world in itself. And this is his famous Ding an sich, which I think I put on your handout. The thing in itself. It will also be used metaphorically. It's a, one of these phrases in German you should use and, and learn and use and impress people at cocktail parties if anybody has cocktail parties anymore. Um, the thing in itself, as it exists unto itself outside the structures of our minds. He believes that it exists. But he also believes we have no direct access to it because we can't get outside of our own heads. Um, and so we can only understand reality as it conforms to the structures of our minds. So he brokers this compromise between idealism and realism and said, says the, mind, the world does have a mind-independent existence, but we don't have access to it. The ding on zik in some sense is an empty concept. It's the world as it is not known. We only have access to the world as it appears to us. That's the first compromise he brokers. He then also brokers the compromise between rationalism and empiricism, which you can just bracket and we'll come back to that later, and says that we're getting empirical sense data from the world. So there's a kind of receptiveness that we have to the world. But then we're also imposing spontaneously on that empirical sense data the structures of our consciousness. You know, in particular, time, space, and causality, which are kind of hardwired. Um, again, don't worry if you don't like get this right away. I'm just kind of throwing it out there. We'll keep coming back to it. This this epistemological moment. You see, we're following on Descartes. Um, this then is going to be Kant's. The basis for what Kant will, will, be, will call his Copernican revolution, and I'll read you this passage from the preface to the Critique of Pure Reason. So remember, Copernicus has this idea that it's not the earth that's at the center, it's the sun that's at the center. And Kant says, up to now it has been assumed that all our cognition must conform to the objects. But let us once try whether we do not get further with the problems of metaphysics by assuming that the objects must conform to our cognition. So the, the world as it exists into itself, we can only take in as it conforms to the structures of our consciousness. So there's a kind of interactive element. Um, Lev Shestov then comes along and says like, Kant's critique of pure reason is not really a critique of pure reason, it's an apology for reason and what it can't really do. And the real critique of pure reason is Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground, which is the Romantic Rebellion, which is what you're, you're reading for this week. Um, but let me now tell you what the Romantics take from Kant. They take his moral philosophy. And his moral philosophy, in some sense, is constructed in an absolutely opposite way to the way his epistemology is constructed. The critique of, of pure reason is incredibly long, detailed, technical, hard to get through. There is, by the way, a cliff note version written by Kant himself, which I recommend to everyone, um, called the Prolegomena um, to any future metaphysics, which is where you should start, where he actually kind of feeds you himself his own main points. Kant's moral philosophy says in order for us to have morality, we have to have free will. 
Without human free will, we can't talk about ethics. We can't prove free will, but we need it because without it, we can't talk about morality. So we're just going to posit it. Forget about proving it. We're just going to say it's there. And while we're at it, let's just say God exists. <laughs> let's just, you know, throw that out there. But for his morality, what is very important is that only an individual with free will can make moral choices. His morality, his moral philosophy is concerned with man's freedom, his free choice, his unfettered will, his essential autonomy. And the thing about Kantian morality is, you know, basically Kantian morality is very simple. To act in a moral way is to do, is to act out of a sense of moral duty and not just what you feel like doing. So you have to kind of temper the fact that you may feel like stealing something, but that wouldn't be good. If you're not sure, like, are you doing this because you feel like it, or is it really like a sense of moral duty? Is it really what's right? There's a test question you can ask yourself, and that question is, what if everyone would act according to the principle I'm about to act, in, uh, act on now? And if the answer is that would be a disaster, like, then it's not, then it's not a good thing to do. <laughs> that's, that's a version of the categorical imperative. Um, in any case, what is important for Kant is intentions. So to act in a moral way is to act out of a sense of moral duty, to do what you, th what you know to be right in a moral sense. Now, the road to hell is kind of paved with good intentions, right? So you can act out of a sense of morally pure intentions, and it can still be a disaster. Kant says, not your fault. Can't do anything about that. Once you act, your actions enter into these complex webs of causality. You probably heard about the butterfly effect. Can't do anything about that. To morally evaluate an action, it's about intention. It's about your will. Do you have the will to act out of a sense of moral duty? Do you have an ethical will? It's all about will. The romantics are really going to take this idea of will, and they're going to run with it. So the important thing about Kantian morality, it's all about intentions and not about consequences. Um, you know, for Kant, freedom and morality are mutually defining. It's all about the motives. Um, Morality cannot be found in anything outside human will. This is also about human dignity. The fact that we have free will, not only, it's not only reason that gives us human dignity, it's the fact that we have free will that gives us human dignity. And Kant's famous definition of human beings, which is something like also, like just like people go back to dare to know, this is when things get too dark and creepy, people go back to Kant's definition you know, of the fundamental moral principle, which is you always treat a human being as an ends and never as a means. You always treat another person as a subject, as an agent, and not as an object, not as a thing. Yeah. He has a famous definition where he says that anything that can be replaced by something else of equivalent value has a price. Anything that is beyond all price and admits of no equivalent has dignity. Human beings are distinguished by possessing dignity. You know, our claims to dignity have to do with our free will and our ability to act morally. Um, Man must always be regarded in all his actions as an end in and of himself. 
So the Kantian legacy for the Romantics is going to be the primacy of the will. We have free will, we can choose to act morally. Again, Kant's mood as a writer, Kant was not like in a romantic vein. I mean, he's a really kind of like very sober, moderate rationalist in terms of his style. But the romantics take this idea of will. It's about motive, it's about intention. You know, it matters because we have free will. Um, the romanticism is gonna take this will as an absolute value. Um, it's going to spend a lot of time talking about the need to act, to create. Creation as an existential imperative. This kind of becoming, what we can make ourselves into. The destination in some sense is not as important as this act of creation itself. Truth is not necessarily something to be found or understood, it's something to be created. It's not something that you discover in a laboratory, it's something that you produce. Again, so the model is, the model is art and not science. Um, they're going to take, the romantics will take the Cartesian cogito ergo sum, the I think, therefore I am, and they're going to counter it with volo ergo sum. I will, I want, I desire, therefore I am rather than grounding subjectivity in cognition, in thinking, they're going to ground subjectivity in desire, in will. So you see the various ways of juxtaposing reason with passion. Again, if you just put this in your head and kind of let it percolate for a while, it will kind of flesh itself out. So it's not cogito ergo sum, it's volo ergo sum. Um, Johann Gottlieb Fichte, a disciple of Kant, says, at the mere mention of the name freedom, my heart opens and flowers, while at the word necessity, it contracts painfully. Um, for Fichte, Frei sein ist nicht, frei werden ist der Himmel. To be free is nothing. To become free is heaven. It's all about becoming. It's about desire. Um, the enormous value of sincerity, the motive being more important than the consequence. At all cost, one must not betray one's own ideals. Um, you can see all sorts of potential for romantic duels playing themselves out, right? Sometimes you need to sacrifice yourself for your beloved. Sometimes you need to do things that are irrational in order to act on your authentic feelings. The purity of heart. Um, ideals often clash. Sometimes two men will love the same woman and then they will have to fight a duel and one of them will have to die because tragedy is endemic to the human condition. What can you do? <laughs> um, you know, that, that's the kind of, kind of quintessential romantic moment. The important thing is not to betray your ideals. Um, let me say, there's, there's a, let me just, as a footnote, say there's a distinction here. We're going to talk about idealism in various ways. There's a romantic idealism, which is the imperative to act on your ideals, to create according to your ideals, to live according to your ideals authentically. We're going to, when we get into Hegel and Marx, we're going to talk about idealism as being in the realm of the kind of metaphysical as opposed to the concrete and the empirical. So just kind of make a little footnote of that. Um, okay, um, emotion should be direct, it should be authentic, that means it's often violent. Um, there are all these kind of longings that can't be rationally justified. Um, people are 
irreducibly singular, unique. They are each individual soul is precious. There's um, another thinker named Johann Georg Hamann, who is a friend of Kant and Konigsberg, who says that these classifications and ordering principles, these categorizations that come to us from scientific enlightenment are meaningless because really human beings are irreducibly unique and singular. Um, what is primary is not necessarily that we long for peace and harmony and contentment. What is primordial is actually this longing for intensity, for passion, um, for violent creation. And again, you can remember um, Goethe's critique, the great German romantic poet of, of Moses Mendelssohn, who won first prize in that essay contest. He says that he, he treats beauty the way entomologists treats butterflies. You know, you capture it, you put it under the glass, you analyze it, and then all the color drains out and everything that was spectacular is kind of killed by your scientific rationalism. Okay, consequences of romanticism. Um, you have to be willing to sacrifice for an ideal, and there's a kind of fetishization about motive and disregard for consequence. As you can imagine, you can then end up with a lot of disastrous consequences. Um, the notion of, of poetry as expressing your soul, as expressing what cannot be expressed, as expressing beauty and torment, this idea of the sublime, what is in some sense too precious and beautiful to really be put into language. There's a lot of uh, British romantic poetry, Byron and Woodsworth. Let me quote to you briefly from Byron's Manfred. How, how beautiful is all this visible world, how glorious in its action and itself. But we who name ourselves its sovereigns, we half dust, half deity alike, unfit to sink or soar with our mixed essence, make a conflict of its elements and breathe the breath of degradation and of pride. Um, art should express what is authentically in the artist's soul, agony, despair. Um, expression is a virtue, this expressivism, you know, as a virtue in itself. The, the, the moral imperative to express your authentic feelings, um, this kind of zainsuk, this kind of quasi-mystical yearning, this longing. Um, out of this, you know, we will, if we get liberalism coming out of enlightenment, we're going to get nationalism coming out of romanticism. Um, it's a much longer story. But the very short version of, of that story is that just as individuals have these irreducible souls, um, so do nations have these irreducible souls. Um, a lot of this comes from the, the German romantic philosopher Johann um, Gottfried Herder and his doctrines of expressionism, of belonging, and of the incompatibility of true ideals, this idea that men exist to express themselves. Expression is conveyed through words. Um, what was especially important about nations um, to Herder was language. Um, the words a person shares with others is a special bond. There's a deep human longing to be at home, to overcome alienation. Man is a social being. We need to belong to these kinds of unique groupings. Um, for Herder, I should say, it was not about blood. It was not about race. It was primarily about soil, about land, and about language, above all about language. Um, he hated cosmopolitanism in 
Enlightenment was very cosmopolitan. I mean, in, in practice, it was very French-centered, but the ethos was very cosmopolitan. Um, so nationalism is going to then come up and replace universalism, this ideal of an organic community with traditional roots. Every, every nation that starts to kind of find itself in Europe will have their great romantic poet you know, at, at least one or two. Um, the Poles have Adam Mickiewicz. Let me read you one, one of his quotes. Um, For the Polish nation did not die. Its body lay in the grave and its soul had gone from the earth into purgatory, into the domestic life of those nations suffering from slavery. And on the third day, the soul will return to the body and the nation will rise again and free all the peoples of Europe from slavery. A lot of very lofty, grandiose language, a lot of talking about the soul. If enlightenment spends a lot of time talking about the mind, romanticism spends a lot of time talking about the soul. Um, one way to understand the French Revolution is that the terror is the moment when enlightenment turns into romanticism and what began as a kind of enlightened, rational, you know, attempt to implement something like liberalism and the declaration of the rights of man is going to turn into an orgy of bloodlust um, during, during the terror, which was 1793 to 1794. Again, if you want to commune with this period, I can recommend um, Andre Vida's film, Danton. Um, Danton is going to die a romantic. Okay, I've got three minutes left, so let me just give you a couple conclusions. Um, romanticism is going to come up as a kind of alter ego of enlightenment that leaves us with a legacy of radical subjectivity as kind of eternal torment. Um, it will have many successors. Um, we talk about Nietzsche. Nietzsche is a kind of, going to be a kind of post-romantic post thinker. Um, Chiron, this kind of irrationalism, irrationalism as a virtue unto itself that you have overcome irrationalism. Existentialism will take quite a lot from romanticism. Um, you'll, you'll, We'll have elements of this in Freudian psychoanalysis. Um, my favorite, like my favorite embodiment of this kind of you know, critique of enlightenment by romanticism is Dostoevsky, who is a kind of post-romantic, post-romantic proto-existentialist writer, I would say, like, like Nietzsche, if we're going to categorize him. Notes from the underground is his tirade against enlightenment. Um, and I it is in some ways the most explicit, you know, and the most, and the tightest critique. Um, so I, I encourage you all to read the whole book. I've given you a little fragment here. There's our, our narrator, the underground man in notes from the underground, who does not want to be rational. And he is self-conscious about his desire not to be rational. Um, this is what the, the a philosopher from Kiev, Lev Shostov, um, calls the true critique of pure reason is not Kant, it's Dostoevsky. And uh, the underground man says, you see, gentlemen, reason is unquestionably a fine thing, but reason is no more than reason. And it gives fulfillment only to man's reasoning capacity, while desires are a manifestation of the whole of life. Man is sometimes extremely fond of suffering to the point of passion, in fact. Civilization merely develops man's capacity for a greater variety of sensations and absolutely nothing else. And through the development of this capacity, man may yet come to find pleasure in the spilling of blood.
And I will leave you in my last 30 seconds with one more quote from the underground man um, who has a tirade against, what if I don't want two plus two to equal four? What if I find that oppressive? What if I find that boring? What if I find that uninspiring? He says, and okay, if everything goes the way enlightenment says, new economic relations will follow ready-made and also calculated with mathematical precision so that all possible questions will disappear in a single instant since they will all have been provided with answers. In short, halcyon days will arrive for mankind. Of course, it's impossible to guarantee, and this now is just myself speaking, that life will not become, let us say, dreadfully boring. On the other hand, though, everything will be extremely reasonable. Oh. Okay, I will see you next week, um, and we'll move on to Hegel. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.